Welcome to HurricaneCenterLive.com. I'm Alex Garcia, Director of the National Tropical Weather Conference and Executive Producer of these programs. These programs are made possible by USAA, the South Pottery Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. These programs are also a team effort with Bill Reed, the former director of the National Hurricane Center, and Tim Smith, chief meteorologist of KRGV-TV. And now, here's Tim Smith. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to NTWC Live for Wednesday, April the 21st. We are so glad to have you along with us this morning uh, for the, what I think is going to be a fantastic program today with Matthew Capucci from the Capital Weather Gang. We're going to be talking about some storm chasing, and I think it's going to be just some terrific stuff. As always, we want to thank our sponsors who make this program a possibility, Plylux, the little hurricane clip you put on that plywood to put in your window to protect you during a storm. We'll hear more about them in a bit. USAA, USAA a sponsor for a long time. We appreciate them. Of course, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, South Padre Island, the home of the National Tropical Weather Conference, a place where we try to meet every year. We were there without you. Hopefully, virtually, you joined us a couple of weeks ago, and we hope to be back in person next year. I also want to mention our friends at Maglite, maglite.com. If you use our discount code, which is NTWC25, you'll get a 25% discount on their website. That's maglite.com. Uh, a lot of stuff coming up today, but we actually have some action in the tropics, just not on our side. For that, let's turn it over to our host with the most, former director of the National Hurricane Center, Mr. Bill Reed. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Jim. Yeah, it's been an interesting weekend following the tropics. I'm just going to share a few things that are going on, and we'll get on with our program. But first, that up. Uh, uh, surrogate. It's been a typhoon, uh, a super typhoon over the weekend. It's been a typhoon for three days now, moving very slowly uh, northward in the Philippine Sea, pretty much abating a track forecast that I looked at last Friday and stayed pretty consistent with that, maybe a little slower. Uh, those of you that have been watching it have probably noticed that the cloud tops have warmed considerably. Uh, but it's still got the big fat tire uh, circulation, and uh, uh, it's going to stay away from land. We're pretty certain of that now. And uh, 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 here's the uh, forecast from the Joint Typhoon Warning Center, uh, Pagasa in the Philippines, and uh, uh, Japanese Typhoon Center that has responsibility for that area have similar uh, forecasts. I just show this one because I, I know the source of it and uh, can talk to it. Uh, Again, it's going to continue to slowly move north-northwest um, while maintaining strong typhoon status. Uh, then get picked up by the westerlies uh, and quickly move east and, and probably lose its tropical characteristics somewhere down the road there. And maybe next week at this time when we do the show, it'll have merged with a, a low somewhere in the Gulf of Alaska. It'll be interesting to see if the moisture of it has an impact on the forecast. The uh, Okay, we'll find the uh, picture here. Yeah, the uh, the uh, interesting thing about uh, this is how strong a storm it was for April. Uh, Sam Lillo put this up uh, uh, just yesterday, I believe. It showed the uh, occurrences of 165 knot or greater winds and tropical cyclones. Uh, and here's Surrogate here in, in April. Uh, there's none in May and, and it's been recorded. It's in 1950 and only one in April and really not until 
September, October time frame, when most of the really strong typhoons and hurricanes have been reported around the world. I haven't really verified this. I put a feeler out to Phil Klotzbach to see if this jives with his data. It's not the only show in town. Uh, overnight, we had a storm form uh, in the uh, Indian Ocean, north of Madagascar. It doesn't look too healthy right now, but uh, uh, let's see. Hmm. Lost my joint typhoon. Let me see if I can get it back here. Nope. Okay, the track from the uh, joint typhoon uh, warning center on this has it. Uh, uh, making a landfall in Tanzania, somewhere on the Tanzanian coast. And uh, Dar es Salaam, the largest city of Tanzania, of about 6 million people are in the track. It, it may reach a hurricane intensity as it crosses the uh, remainder of the Indian Ocean before landfall, but it's forecast to be a tropical storm strength. The, the main concern is it's fairly slow moving, so once landfall occurs, extreme rains and flooding will be the issue there. Okay, we'll be right back after a word from one of our sponsors with our speaker. We made USAA insurance for members like Kate, a former Army medic made of the flexibility to handle whatever Monday has in store and tackle four things at once. So when her car got hit, she didn't worry. She simply filed a claim on her USAA app and said, I've got this. USAA Insurance has made the way Kate needs it. Easy. She can even pick her payment plan, so it's easy on her budget and her life. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. USAA. Blackmagic Design's A10 Mini line of line production switchers makes it easy to create professional broadcast quality programs and multi-camera productions and stream them live to YouTube, Facebook, and more, or present live via Zoom and Skype. Simply connect the A10 Mini and switch live up to eight high-quality video camera inputs for dramatically better quality images. All A10 Mini models have USB that works like a webcam for use with any streaming software, while the A10 Mini Pro and the A10 Mini Extreme models add direct live streaming and recording to USB discs. A10 Mini models start at $295. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. Okay, we have an interesting speaker today. I'll give you a few tidbits on uh, Matthew Capucci. He's with the Capital Weather Gang. Uh, many of you uh, who've been following us have uh, seen Jason now on our program, uh, also from Capital Weather Gang. Uh, this is something I didn't, this is amazing to me. He has a Bachelor in Atmospheric Sciences from Harvard. I didn't know they had atmospheric sciences. Come to find out, Matthew was instrumental in creating the uh, atmospheric science program at Harvard. We have one other Harvard graduate in our, in our midst, and that's Josh Morgerman. So maybe the storm chasing thing comes out of going to Harvard, who knows? Um, Another little tidbit, when he was 14, he became the youngest ever presenter at the American Meteorological Society's annual meeting. That's pretty amazing. Uh, while he works for the uh, Washington Post, he spends most of his time on the road, and that's what his talk will be about today, is there's uh, hurricane chasing uh, uh, exploits during the last season and things he learned from that. So Matthew, it's all yours. 
Hey, well, thanks so much, and thank you, everyone, for having me. It's, it's kind of funny you mentioned me being in the road. I'm actually in the road right now in Meridian, Mississippi, heading west for tornado season. Seems fitting that we're talking about being on the road, but if anyone sees me glance off screen at any point, I am uh, a little bit anxious because moments before this call, there was a very large spider just down there, and so uh, that's what you get when you book an inexpensive hotel, so forgive me for that. Anywho, let me share my screen real quick, and we'll get right into it. This has to be one of my favorite topics. I love all things micro scale, especially when it comes to hurricanes. And this past season, I had the chance to be with Karen Kasiba and uh, Josh Werman in their Dow as they chased Hurricane Laura. And that was such a cool experience. And it was really nice to be able to share that with Capital Weather Gang readers. And again, thank you to the folks who organized this conference for having us. And thank you to uh, Jason, my boss, for making it happen. So, chased three storms this past season, Hurricane Laura, of course, that Category 4 that impacted Lake Charles, Louisiana. It was very interesting to see how localized the damage was in that the worst swath of wind that I saw was about 30 miles wide. But seeing the edge of that, how quickly it went from pretty significant EF1 to low-end EF2 damage to next to nothing was really interesting. And I hadn't really seen that with a hurricane before. I've been you know, to a couple of hurricanes, but never really a high-end hurricane like this. And that was pretty interesting to witness firsthand. Also got to chase Hurricane Sally, which really came ashore a lot more significant than I've been expecting planning that chase. And I think a lot of folks were expecting the HMOD seemed to capture that really well. Came ashore as a high-end cat, too. And I chased Hurricane Delta as well. So I got a lot of frequent flyer miles last year on the Gulf Coast with none of the storms that I have more than about an hour and a half to two hours worth of warning before hopping on that flight, which I love spontaneity. But that was a pretty interesting element of it. And so I think one of the things that is really key with this presentation is seeing how much advanced planning was necessary for Kasiba and, and Worman to really get into the field, to get their DAOs in position. I didn't realize some of the limitations with the DAO, but also some of the technological advantages that make it such an amazing tool. We'll also talk about some of the coverage challenges, because during this, I was trying to cover the storm for, for Capital Weather Gang, do radio hits, do TV, and, and there was a lot of that, so a ton of multitasking. At one point, I worked 44 hours in a row with only about 90 minutes worth of sleep. And some of the challenges of the chase, too. This was kind of my first season of really chasing all the landfalling U.S. storms. And that was really exciting. I'm used to chasing tornadoes. And so it was a very different dynamic to do it for hurricanes. So we go back to August 24th. This is when the models really started showing, okay, Laura might rapidly intensify. We try to communicate that in our writings, but already we knew there was a good chance it would be a Category 3-plus hurricane the lack of shear, the warm ocean water temperatures. I mean, everyone knows this stuff. It, it was sort of primed. When we go back last year, this is something we include in the article on the 24th, everywhere across the Gulf of Mexico, save for right near the immediate Gulf Coast, offshore Mississippi, Louisiana, and uh, Florida, was, was pretty toasty, anomalously toasty. And it seems like last year, a lot of the hurricanes didn't even care about anomalies. They just cared about the raw SSTs, which, which is true, but just an amazing season last year. Now we go back to early on the 24th, we see it south of Cuba right there, getting organized, high in tropical storm bordering on Category 1 strength. But one of the things was that it looked like initially the center of circulation did move ashore. And so that's where it seemed like a lot of our uncertainty with the models came from. Scatterometer data shows on the right, it is just offshore of Cuba. And then on the left, bottom, uh, bottom left right there, you can see a lot of lightning activity is concentrated offshore, some of the weaker tops onshore, really challenging to, to see right there on the screen, but uh, looks like it moved ashore at that point. And, and so that's where a lot of our uncertainty was. And for about a day's time, we didn't know whether or not it would really stay far enough south or if it would go 
just a little farther north and sort of weaken the circulation. And so I did a TV hit that afternoon and I, I talked about really that uncertainty of whether or not we would have a high-end storm or whether or not it would still be reorganizing the Gulf. By 9.14 p.m. on the 24th, that center was starting to reemerge over northern Cuba and already you can see this convective burst south of it really starting to organize again. And slight little winds at that point looked to be about 35, 45 knots. So it was getting going. But uh, shortly thereafter, it really just took off. And I want to see if I can show this GIF real quick. Right there, obviously, the more important convective burst right near the middle, circulation moving offshore. And that's sort of when the models really looked to latch on to the fact that rapid intensification was a really good bet. And we knew that we were looking at something that, unfortunately, wasn't good for the Gulf Coast. Initially, it seemed like a lot of the models had it trending farther west than originally anticipated. For example, I know that Houston was undergone for a while. For about a day and a half time, we were really concerned about Houston. And on the right, right there, you can see some of the satellite imagery from that point. Over time, the model slowly started shifting eastward again. But even on August 25th in the morning, you can see that core is really getting organized once again. Even though it didn't look great on satellite at that point, the, the microwave imagery was really telling and showed that core was still intact, even after it's running with Cuba. I feel like that was kind of a theme last year where it seemed like every storm, you know, past years when they dealt with Cuba or Hispaniola, they were sort of, you know, weakened very quickly or really shredded. Whereas last year, that didn't seem to be the case. I know Isaias did this weird thing where it sidestepped Cuba and, and the circulation almost went at the moment of passage, which was bizarre to see. But yeah, it was like the, the obstacle that is Cuba or the obstacle that was Hispaniola last year just couldn't really knock the heels out from these storms, which was amazing to see. By 11 a.m. 25th, and, and the Hurricane Center did an amazing job th this whole time. I mean, their, their communication, their, their ramping up of messaging was done well in advance. I, I thought they did a, a phenomenal job. But about 11 a.m. on the 25th was when they really sort of ramped up the anticipated storm surge. It said 9 to 13 feet for intercoastal city of Louisiana, including Saimon Lake to uh, the Calcasieu Parish. And Calcasieu was really where it came ashore. Uh, they were... Uh, and I landed in Houston around 11 a.m. on the 25th, too. So when I landed, I immediately checked the latest statements, and I went, uh-oh, you know, we're, we're in trouble here. And that's why I started driving to Port Arthur, because in advance, we had arranged that I would be sort of an embed with uh, Karen Casiba's team and, and Josh Werman's team. And so this was something organized by Andrew Friedman, at the time our deputy weather editor, who has since moved back to Axios. Uh, amazing guy, but he, he somehow uses connections to organize this. So I was very excited. I was also a little bit nervous not because of the hurricane, but because I've been a fan of both uh, Worman and Kasiba since I watched them on documentaries back in the, you know, the late 2000s, early 2010s, back when I was still in grade school. And so to be able to meet them firsthand, but also to be in the Dow, which I you know, dreamt of seeing for the longest time, was super exciting, but also a little bit daunting. I get starstruck very easily. And so as I was driving eastwards, uh, we kept getting, I want to say four or five times in the course of 30, 40 minutes, we kept getting these uh, EAS alerts over the wireless emergency alert system. And, and so driving eastwards, there was nobody on the road. It, it seemed like there were very few people heading eastwards, understandably so, people evacuating from the Beaumont area westwards. There was no contraflow, but one of the things that really intrigued me, even in the, the Port Arthur area, was just how much of a ghost town it was. I mean, I've seen hurricanes before I've seen areas that you know had folks left behind, some folks were stragglers. So I thought people this time did a phenomenal job of evacuating. I mean, it was a ghost town. There was nobody there. And part of me wonders if that area between Imelda and between Harvey, between everything like that, really took it as seriously as they should have. I feel like a lot of time people don't heed the warnings to the extent they should have. 
in this case, it seemed like people really paid attention. And I think one of the things that was a success with uh, Hurricane Laura, too, was communicating the water threat, especially in that area, which in the pre previous few years has seen so many significant floods from even low-end tropical cyclones. I, I feel like the public there has really got it, and that was really nice to see. Again, everything boarded up. I got to the hotel in the afternoon, and it was still sunny, but there were these weird squalls that kept coming, uh, coming through every so often, courtesy of Marco. Remember, Laura and Marco were doing that weird thing, almost like a tango in the, in the Gulf for a little while. Marco, of course, dying pretty quickly, but it was uh, interesting to see that we were still getting squalls as far west as Beaumont, Port Arthur. Did a quick TV hit from a hotel over there, and uh, again, making, tool, making do with what we can, a laptop on a stand just like I have right now, but... Uh, when you're doing hurricanes, you're forced to be a little creative. By 8 o'clock p.m., we were getting 83-mile-an-hour winds in the northern eyewall per reconnaissance, pressure down to 984. And obviously right there for the folks at home, they, they can see plainly. You know, we're getting the, the overshooting times wrapping around the center. This is kind of when it was taking off and what it really meant business. By 11 p.m., again, texture getting better. You see the transverse spanning the southeast side. A little drier on the northwest side, but didn't really, you know, halt the storm's progress all that much. It was just such a favorable environment. And one of the interesting things was by 1 a.m. on August 26th, we had that eye developing. But it was amazing to see the stark difference between, you know, midnight, 1 a.m. on the 26th, and even just daylight a few hours later. And that's really when the messaging started to become a little bit more dire. Because look what happens. We'll show you in just a second uh, this dark comparison. But one of the things that I, I always, you know, look into when I, when I go to these places because we're always trying to find creative ways to communicate to the public, is what will really you know, get them to understand the severity of the situation. It seems like a lot of people only take action when somebody else does or when a trusted fellow or our neighbor or something like that does. And so in this case, I tweeted out something about the Waffle House shutting down, and I didn't think it would be anything more than an anecdote. And surprisingly, this was one of the most consumed little tidbits of news that we put out during this storm. And, and Morning, guys. I'm here in Port Arthur right now, and it's getting kind of eerie. The town is very silent, very quiet, very little traffic out there in area roadways. Walmart are shut down. All the major stores and restaurants are shut down. But the creepiest part, take a look at this. The Waffle House has closed here in Port Arthur until at least Thursday, likely Friday. They say so they plan to reopen on Friday if they have over 40,000 views, which was really nice to see. But again, creative ways of trying to communicate during a storm. And at this point, I'm planning to rendezvous with Karen Kasiba and Josh Werman the next morning. And around that time, 5 a.m. the 26th, this forecast will be a major Category 4 before landfall. Still, they were forecasting at that point a Cat 3 at landfall. But this is when that boat of rapid intensification was really starting to ensue. Look at the difference between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. on the 26th. A again, just clear as day right there, that eye really becoming prevalent, that wrap around the transverse band. I mean, everything there kind of makes your heart sink when you're trying to forecast a storm that you know is is in the Gulf, going to impact people. And this area, beleaguered so hard to get the past few years. Very unfortunate to see. By 8 a.m., gusts to 125 miles per hour, visible in the northern eyewall, pressure down to 952. So a lot of folks at home might be familiar with the term bombogenesis. We more than bombed out, you know, if this were an extra tropical storm. In this case, the pressure was just dropping rapidly with this storm. Uh, very impressive to see. And again, you can see the bulk of the winds really concentrated on the right side of the northeast side, which is important to remember because we'll talk about how we are in the western eye wall later on. So I want to set the scene for you because there was a lot more of trying to figure out the right word. 
I, I think oftentimes when people at home think about scientists, they think that everything always goes according to plan, that it's very methodical. And indeed, we try to be methodical, but oftentimes when you're doing science and when you're doing field work, you know, sometimes you know what hits the fan and you have to roll with the punches. And, and seeing uh, Dr. Kasiba and, and Dr. Warman do that was uh, amazing to see just how, how much they were really able to improvise at the time. So, for example, they're planning to do dual Doppler within the eye. They were trying to drive the, the trucks down from Boulder, Colorado, from the Center of Severe Weather Research. And unfortunately, one of them had a clogged air filter, and that meant that the engine was suffering major issues. There were fried electrical wires. And so every few minutes, every 10, 15 miles, the engine would stall. They have to shut down and restart again, let it cool. And, and so only one of the Doppler radars uh, made it down to the hotel successfully. The other was stranded about 30 miles west on Highway 73. This was Dow 7. And so the morning meeting, which was when I had first met them, really focused around how to get this sort of dilapidated Dow up and running, how they could jerry-rig you know, jerry it and, and get it going. And so Karen and Josh called AutoZone, which amazingly was open. I mean, nothing in town was open, but AutoZone, and I think Home Depot stayed open until about 10 a.m. that morning, just so folks who were trying to make last-minute preparations could do so. And that's exactly what they did. So they rushed over to AutoZone, and, and of course, I'm trying to you know, write articles, take notes, everything I'm paying attention to, but also try to get radio hits out and stuff like that. But uh, they, they got everything they needed to at least make some temporary fixes, whether it be, uh, I think, a new air filter, batteries, stuff like that, wire strippers. And they are a heck of a lot more mechanically inclined than I am. So we were in Port Arthur. The other Dow, Dow 7, was stranded about 30 miles west. So I drove one of the uh, techs farther west to this Dow, where he started working on it. And, you know, they were trying to figure it out and then do all sorts of stuff like that. At these hours already farther east at the hotel new position. And it was sunny, it was beautiful that morning around 11 a.m. We started getting a cirrus, and it was very, very funny to see how it's, it's like night and day when you see the edge of the storm. And that was the first time, actually the second time I'd really seen the edge of the storm with the cirrus, so to speak. The other really pronounced one was when we had Dorian last year as I worked at the Carolina coast in the D.C. area, which was 600 miles away from the storm at that point. We were getting such picturesque outflow that a lot of people saw halos, saw amazing sunsets. But it was so cool to just see that line in the sky, and that's one of the things that I got to see there. But they were working the truck. I'm not mechanically inclined at all, so at this point, I was still trying to write articles, everything, doing it remotely from a mobile phone, with radar, with everything like that. And they had me shrink wrap. And since I'm not mechanically inclined, they had me doing whatever I could. So I was shrink wrapping this the 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 radome where, where some of the technology was down in the bottom of the radar trying to get it up and running because apparently even though the dows are you know equipped to handle strong winds equipped to handle everything like that the wind driven rain is a big problem and so they will shrink wrap as much of the technology as they can and even during the storm the cab of the truck was actually leaking from just how much rain was coming down we're getting rainfall rates briefly around three inches per hour and when you have that at 110 miles per hour it's it's pretty easy to see how they can get water in places they don't want water. Speaking of water real quick. So I was duct taping everything. That was pretty interesting. And I was just so excited that I got to be up close and personal with the Dow, never mind shrink wrapping it and duct taping it. And believe it or not, doing a good job shrink wrapping apparently takes, a, it's a two person effort is, is challenging, but nonetheless it, it works. And from there, the other Dow had already positioned further east. I hung back with our photographer and with the 
the sort of the crippled Dow, Dow 7, and we tried to make a, a trip to Orange where they were trying to station the Dows, but without going on many main roads. We stayed off I-10, we took 73 eastwards, sort of navigated through some areas in, in Port Arthur. And one of the interesting things, there were already tornado warnings at this point, and the storm was way offshore, like it was mostly sunny, but there were a few cells that were spinning. And so I, I want to discuss sort of what Karen and Josh were looking for, because their research is, is in my mind, absolutely groundbreaking. And I think we'll, we'll usher in sort of a new, new way we'll eventually communicate hazards in tropical cyclones, because I think so often, and I'm guilty of this myself, so often I'm trying to explain a hurricane to somebody, I explain it like the sink train or like the toilet, because everyone knows radial inflow is sort of the, the, the easy hurricane model that the public is used to. And so the public will see this buzzsaw storm, especially on satellite. We show satellite or radar. They see this buzzsaw storm, and they think, okay, the winds are worse in the middle, and then you have a calm eye. And this is a great example of how that's not always the case, especially we consider Isaias, for example. You know, that, that was an instance where the tornado outbreak caused numerous fatalities where the actual winds didn't have that high of an impact. And I think that was a great example of how the hazards associated with tropical storms, including wind hazards, can oftentimes be well removed from the center. And, and I think that posed a communication challenge for, for myself and many other people in the Mid-Atlantic. But my biggest challenge since then is trying to then communicate, you know, that, that storms are not these perfect radial inflows. It's not that coin thing we see at the mall. And that's sort of a public perception I'm trying to break and, and a lot of folks are trying to break. And I think the groundbreaking research that Josh and Karen are doing will really help to do that. And so of course in the outer rain bands, this is from an old presentation I did, outer rain bands, we're used to talking tornadoes, we're used to talking microbursts, but within the eye wall, it, it was amazing to see that much of the damage, and this was something we first learned about with Andrew back in the 1990s, much of the damage actually came from roll vortices, from sort of you know quasi-harmonic, those, those roll vortices, mini swirls, or even uh, those destructive tornadoes, uh, tornado scale vortices that Josh and Karen really found great evidence of. And in the inner eye wall, similar things, those TSVs and mesovortices. And so the winds are not this perfect radial inflow. They might be at, at 925 millibars, 950 millibars, but from a communication standpoint, which is sort of the, the industry that, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, I know a lot of broadcast meteorologists are, it, it's challenging because no one really lives at 925, no one lives at 950. And so that's why I think the work that Josh and Karen do is, is, is amazing. And it's kind of funny because when we talk about hurricanes the, and, and tornadoes, both, you know, the, those high-end windstorms that impact people, the intensity estimates for hurricanes are made in real time, but oftentimes several thousand feet above the ground where these boundary layer effects aren't pronounced and really can't be sampled, whereas the tornadoes, it's all based on damage. And, and I really think that if we were to survey hurricane damage the same way that we did tornadoes, and I know that Wakimoto, Black, Fujita did back in the 1990s, they, they came up with incredible results. I really think that our paradigm, we communicate hurricane wind effects and sort of the challenges of doing so would shift a little bit. And that's why I was so enthusiastic to learn more about Josh and Karen's research and to, to be a part of that and to tell their story. It's, it's you know, a really challenging thing that we just can't really sample the boundary layer effects unless we do it with with DAOs, and that's why it was amazing to see that, that Josh and Karen were doing that. Again, when we talk about what's going on in the, the eye wall of a storm, usually it's from flights, you know, 5,000, 10,000 feet for folks at home, 
which is higher, which is when they get the sort of the, the best radial inflow in that classic model. And we've seen that earlier on with slice of the storm, but when it comes to a landfalling storm, the frictional effects in the boundary layer of the ground, uh, everything like that changes dramatically from even near the coast to just a, a kilometer inland. And, and so that's why sort of the, the, the work that Josh and Karen are doing is, is very important. With tornadoes, we have a very easy scale to rate damage. I wish that we had a way to rate hurricane damage because, of course, the, the Fujita scale, while great, doesn't always take into effect dur uh, duration of winds. And, and I wish there was a way that we could do that. But uh, that's why it's so important, the work that Josh and Karen are doing. And it, it brings shades of, of Hurricane Andrew when several scientists just made an amazing survey of the damage afterwards. And that's when we first learned about these microscale effects, whether it be the, the tornado scale vortices or whether it be the roll vortices. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, th that's something that we're seeing more evidence of nowadays, but the worst winds always occur on the micro scale level. And so this is what they were looking for. Obviously, you know, in past hurricanes, we all know about mesovortices for the folks at home. It's just kind of the result of an angular momentum uh, flux. You're trying to get more of that angular momentum into the eye. And to do so, you, you get sort of eddy breakdown, vortex breakdown, because there's such a shift such a gradient in angular momentum when you go from the crazy eye wall to the calm eye and resultantly with some of the strongest storms, we need to get those miniature bends. And that's something we'll talk about later on. Now, during Hurricane Harvey, Kasiba and Werman found just, just amazing resolution of, of four different uh, mesovortices inside. And they found winds, you know, change of wind speed, 30, 40 plus meters per second as each of these swung through. And so seeing some of the, the effects they got, and of course you see in yellow, that's where their Dow was positioned at the time. It was very impressive to see. This was a screenshot I took during Hurricane Michael showing some of these roll vortices. And this is just with the WSR-88D. If we'd had during that, uh, and I think they, they probably did, if we had had there during that, you can imagine the resolution they would have. And oftentimes these things might stay in place for 10, 20 minutes, be a kilometer or a mile wide. And, and you know, they're usually down in the bottom 4,000 feet. But one of the most amazing things that, that uh, you know, Josh and Karen found during Harvey were these tornado scale vortices that might only exist on the order of 300 meters, 500 meters. And they weren't the strength of a tornado. These might only have change in wind speed of, of maybe say 30 meters per second. So let's say about 65, 70 miles per hour. And so on their own, they wouldn't be overly destructive, but against the background wind, which might be going, you know, 100 miles per hour, suddenly you can have these swaths of extreme damage. This is something that Fujita first theorized back in 1992 after surveying the damage left behind from Hurricane Andrew. And this was really the first time when they got such amazing resolution. And one of these actually hit near their location back during Harvey. They had a gust to 146 miles per hour at the Dow site. And several cars in the parking lot nearby were lofted, but some cars were picked up and thrown, and other heavier cars were not. And it, it's amazing to see that bo both these tornado-scale vortices are even smaller mini-swirls. Mini-swirls are, are a, I believe, you know, even tougher to discern via even high-resolution radar because they're, they're anchored at the surface and really fade off with height. There was that one actually live on the air with, I think, Mike Bettison. He was covering Hurricane Irma in Florida back in 2017. And I don't know if anyone remembers the shot, but it, it just snuck right past them. And winds in that were probably an extra 60, 70 miles per hour. So anyway, that's what they were looking for. And, and we took the Dallas farther east. This is the one that was having the issues. And they stationed them like this. So this is the border between Texas on the left and Louisiana on the right, on the east. The two radars were about 3.9 miles apart. And they had many challenges in trying to find a good site because 
they were trying to find something that was high enough that they didn't have to deal with any ground clutter because trees, e even you know, dense shrubbery, buildings, anything like that can significantly impact their, their, the success of their scans because with traditional radar, you might be 100 feet above the ground. With them, they're only about 10 feet up, so that posed a big challenge, which is why they chose the overpass location on the left. And also surge. Surge was a biggie. Remember, the forecast was for about 20 feet of surge spreading up to 40 miles inland. And so even though the surge forecast was realized farther east, it wasn't where we were at the time. We had to do the best we could with the information available at the time. And so they decided to space them like this. They wanted two radars in there so they could do sort of a, a dual Doppler effect, which would allow them to really model the 3D wind field in a way that most folks just haven't been able to before. So this was the site we chose. Here's Google Maps. Again, we are well up there, and, and you can see everything down there is just flat, and it, it really shows just how vulnerable this area was to surge. This is when they were really scoping out the site. Again, the radar is right here like this, and great photos from our, our freelance photographer, uh, uh, Aaron Trieb, who, who was with us the entire time inside the Dow. Again, they're working on it, still shrink wrapping. By the evening, beautiful sunset as that Cirrus was coming in. And remember, we're about 26.7 miles inland. The forecast was for 40 miles inland of penetration of that surge, which is why we had to be really careful. Had we gone over to Sulphur Lake Charles, initially that area looked to be susceptible for surge. And so, well, I think we all knew that the eye had a better chance of coming ashore farther east just because of a, an abundance of caution and limitations of safety. They made the decision to stay where we were. And so, you know, around evening, we're about 146 miles away from the, the core of the storm. That's when the beautiful sunset pictures were taken. I was still writing articles at this point. One of the things that was interesting was as it was a category four strength, we started seeing the EEL, the enveloped eyewall lightning signature. And that's one of those things that, that always makes you kind of gasp when you see it on the lightning clock, because that's always a sign of a very intense eyewall. And another thing that I think the folks at home will love, one of the scans that the Hurricane Center, that the Hurricane Hunters took shows just I, I love this plot. This is my favorite plot out of everything. It shows amazing subsidence in the eye. So for folks at home, when you have sinking air, the air compresses, it warms up, and it dries out, something called adiabatic compression. And what you're seeing right here, you see those two increases in temperature. We saw, what, a, a 10, 12-degree Fahrenheit spike in temperature and a dramatic drop in dew point. So you have air that has been sucked in, gone all the way up in the eye wall, and now it's coming back down in the eye, which is why it's clear. It's pushing down. It's, it's eradicating clouds but is warming up significantly and drying out, which is, I just, I love being able to see in these plots. The, the fact that they, they make these plots public, something that we can see is just such an advantage to our field as a whole. One cool thing, red sky at night, sailors delight, not so much. We got this right before the, the storms, the first squall started coming in. You see the double rainbow out there. And this is when mesovortices became visible on radar uh, from, from even just ground-based radar the, the KLIX, or not KLIX, the, the Lake Charles one. And uh, I was texting a mother uh, who surprisingly wasn't overly enthusiastic about getting the eye. But I, I think as we went on, you know, conditions were worsening. There was sort of this, this energy drop-off with time that uh, I think folks knew we weren't getting into the eye at that point. And so they, they want to be in the eye, but just safety limitations, we couldn't do it. But the resolution of what they were seeing was amazing. We were still getting winds over 110 miles an hour. Here's a video. I'm here on Chattanooga in the Center for Severe Weather Research's Doppler on Wheels, a mobile Doppler radar. So you can see we're getting sustained winds of 9 miles per hour with gusts of 111. And elsewhere, further east, 
gusts to around 130 miles per hour near the ocean. of this donut of severe winds surrounding the eye, the eye that core of the storm, and the conditions are very now, bad right now. Uh, at one point, we actually had, wall, and well, this was during the eye wall. We were in the western eye wall, winds gusting to 111 miles per hour. There was an 18-wheeler that was trying to get over this bridge. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, there was an 18-wheeler trying to get over this bridge, and it, it was amazing to see because it started teetering in, in th this whole time, which was just uh, uh, crazy, but yeah. I'm running a little low on time, so I'm going to try to speed up a little bit because I had two other storms I was considering talking about. But anyway, uh, 111 miles per hour was the peak that they observed. At one of the downs of Dow, I was at farther east. They got a gust of 98.2. They got amazing small-scale features in their eyeball and those over the And you can see, again, this is the wind they observed with the radar, minus the background wind. And so you can see some of these locally enhanced sort of channels of wind. The damage was amazing. I saw high-end EF1, low-end EF2 damage. But it ended sort of like a, almost like a line. And it was interesting, too, because one side of the interstate, Interstate 10 eastbound, was perfectly fine. Westbound was covered in trees because they got the north side, or rather northerly winds on the west side of the eyewall. And so it pushed all the trees to the south. That was amazing to see. Did a couple TV hits, which this is what it looked like on air. From behind the scenes, I was doing it from a 7-Eleven parking lot next to a dumpster, which didn't smell great, but you make do with what you can. Flew back to Houston, where... This is a funny story. You know, I flew back to Houston, and remember, I would worked 44 hours uh, nonstop, only about a two-hour nap in the Dow, and so I was exhausted. Went to sleep, had a flight early the next morning, and I woke up. My plane took off at 5 o'clock, and I woke up at 4.57, and I have never missed a flight before. I somehow slept through multiple alarms, slept through a wake-up call, and so I panicked. I called American Airlines, pushed back to the next flight. So I go back to Houston's airport, turn on the rental car. I get in the, the shuttle from the rental car to go to the main terminal. And there's only, you know, one or two other people on here. So I go put my luggage down. I'm going to sit in the back. And I look up. I'm like, wait a second. Because, like I said, there were only two other people on here. And I'm like, Cantori? And he's like, Kapuchi. And so Jim Cantori was the only other person on the shuttle, which I would like to think is a, a pretty good sign. When you see Jim Cantori in your airport shuttle, you know you're in the right place. So uh, Alex, I'll ask quickly, do I have time to, to talk briefly, maybe six, seven minutes on uh, – Awesome, thanks. I want to cover Sally a little bit because Sally was a great chase too. Sally, uh, I'll jump right into it. This was on uh, the morning of, let's see, September 20th. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. September 13th. And uh, this was, again, one of the challenges. We knew Sally was going to be a biggie. We didn't know just how bad it would be. And Sally was one that really just eluded uh, us trying to forecast the entire time. Model initialization wasn't great because it was so lopsided. such an ugly storm at that point. The center is plotted next. But the GFS, which you see in blue right here, initialized it kind of in the center of convection rather than the center of circulation, which is why the GFS model didn't do a great job with it. The folks at home, the European model did a much better job, was much farther east, and that's when we were forecasting Louisiana to be impacted. And so they had me fly down to New Orleans. Again, this thing was just sitting and spinning for a long time. Beautiful convective burst right here, but you can see, look at the upper level circulation and look at the low level circulation. The center of circulation is still like right over here. And so it was very lopsided, and that's why intensity forecasts were such a challenge. Meanwhile, farther east, we had Tropical Depression 21, which became Vicky. So a lot going on in the tropics at that point. But one of the things that caught my eye, whoops, caught my eye with Sally, was just how really nice the, the eye wall looked, even before it, it increased in intensity. Like, it, the structure wasn't great. I think it was a Category 1 at this point. 
But look, it had storm tops to almost 60,000 feet, which you hardly ever see in a supercell, never mind a tropical storm, which I, I was just uh, amazed to see. And that's sort of the point when we realized, you know, if it looks like this, just in terms of storm tops, might as well fly down. So it flew down. Every time I fly, it seems like the people next to me always get a little bit weirded out when I start talking about rainbows and pointing a camera out the window, but yeah, that's all right. So I settled in Gulf Shores, Louisa, uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. At this point, it was a tropical storm approaching Cat 1 status. Didn't look great. I kind of cut my losses. I was thinking, you know, we, we might get some flooding as a main story. I didn't think we would have any real impact to tell about the winds. So I was covering flooding, again, doing hits for a couple different places. You see the flooding right there, and this is mainly, at, believe it or not, this is mainly fresh water with a little bit of splash over. And around And I parked my rental car up on the sidewalk over there, and they thought I was crazy. The hotel front lady you know, said, said, why are you parking there? I said, a lot of other places will be underwater because they had a curb everywhere around the parking lot. There was no place that the rain could drain off, and I had a very small vehicle. And look, this was only after about four inches of rain. Keep in mind, we got 29.99 inches at my location. So after only about four inches of rain, you can see why I wanted to park as high as I could. This is when it really started taking off and whoops, let me see if I can move this. Yeah, it really started taking off. You see the eye beginning to develop again right there. And the western eye wall, unusually, was a little bit fiercer seen than the eastern eye wall. This is a video I got as things were really starting to, to become a, a little bit more intense. And this is a great video for social media. I was doing kind of an hourly update. At 11 o'clock, the wind and the rain picked up markedly. And the power so went you down. never know what you will see. The power went out at kind of an auspicious time. And at this point, during the evening, you know, winds were gusting about 110 miles an hour, 4,500 feet. And you can see this is when it was really ramping up. It became a high-end cat, too, with even some evidence of micro-scale uh, vortices in there, rather. And uh, during the eye wall, it was pretty impressive. Now 3.45 in the morning, we're seeing the inner edge of the eye wall come in right now. The trees are flailing wildly out there by the flashy distance. We're likely seeing winds gusting upwards of 80 to almost 90 miles per hour outside. With the inner edge of the eye and wall. And now it's silent in the eye. And see if you can listen to the noise out there that's being made by it. And Now, I don't know if it is completely quiet here right now. The only sound that of tree frogs, the rain has just started and to stop And listen to right the now. sound inside the eye. Pure calm, serenity, thoughts. All right, it's right around 4 a.m. Central Time right now. We're going out to survey the damage to the parking lot. We heard that some folks' cars in the back actually floated away. Is that correct? Wow, so yeah, tons of rainfall here, over about a foot and a half of rain in many areas. But take a look at this. This is a really bad pre-damage there. Again, vehicles underwater this gentleman had shrimp in the thing beneath our several inches of water but i never thought i would see shrimp in a car or in a you know ironically the one thing that stayed dry out of every place in the hotel grounds is the pool even though winds are coming out of the east northeast they completely demolished this door on the western side of the hotel throwing debris inside what could happen that's why you don't want to be near any windows during high winds so, so this was again more photos from that 
parking lot and look at the entire landscape. Right? You saw that there it was scrimped two miles inland. The, the ground was so sodden with about 30 inches worth of rain that any cement signs were actually popping up out of the ground, not from the wind, but from the rain. And we got really bad damage to soft pines too from some of those uh, smaller scale wind features further east. I think Mobile Bay got an anti-surge, which was kind of interesting. We really lucked out with surge in that one, partly because of the symmetry of the coast. Pensacola got a 5.3-foot surge, and you can see right there. It could have been a heck of a lot worse if the symmetry was just a little bit shallower in Pensacola. But, yeah, like I said, Mobile Bay got an anti-surge. I rushed home. I, I, you know, I, I flew home, and I got there. 24 hours would be sea hit. Thank goodness I had a spare suit iron. And very briefly, let's talk about Delta real quick. Again, Delta, as soon as it passed the Yucatan Peninsula, that core was still intact. I drove from New Orleans farther westward, so a little bit west of Lake Charles. It took me about five hours, or six hours rather, to get to what should have been maybe a two and a half hour drive, because everybody this time, after having seen Laura, was trying to evacuate both west and east. The Waffle House was again shut down. And going into the storm, so this was the morning it came ashore, but again, we had had no impact yet. It came ashore that evening. I want to show you some of the damage that existed from just Laura before we even got into Delta. 200 kilometers per hour. For more, I'm joined by Matthew Capucci. He's a meteorologist at the Washington Post. Uh, Matthew, good to see you. He's joining me from uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. How's it looking where you are? You know, Jennifer, people are really gearing up for what could be a pretty bad storm here. I sat in traffic for about five hours yesterday trying to come into Lake Charles because there was a 60-kilometer backup of people trying to just get out. They had that experience with Laura. They know what a hurricane can do, and now everybody's trying to flee. I've heard from people who spent seven little hours little trying to go. And this entire building just having collapsed, and this is I going into another hurricane. We already saw significant damage with Laura well. about a month, and, month and a half ago. There's maybe 20 in a few spots. My goodness. So, Matthew, you talked about people. Again, uh, you radar. Gotta... Stop by to check up on the radar. This was the radar after Laura. And so I, I think it was the University of Oklahoma brought down a, a mobile radar that they could use to supplement weather service forecasts because, again, they had a major uh, significant landfalling storm in an area that had no real radar coverage all over the place. I went to a mobile home community. This was before Delta. Before Delta, it's for 106 miles Charles. This is what was sort of left. I heaps of trash wrapped on the side of the road. It was so unfortunate to see that this was going into another storm. Now, the storm itself was pretty messy. I relocated down to Lake Arthur. It's pretty messy. There was very little wind I got. I mean, it got maybe 40 miles per hour until the eye wall. And that's when we were getting guests to 90. But it was amazing to see how this storm, it, it was like there was a big moat around the eye wall. And that it was just characterized very different than the other storms I chased. But look at what happened when the eye wall came in. Power lines going down, everything like that. Now, on the inside of the eye, and this is where it was very interesting, on the inside of the eye, you'll notice all those kind of scalp things. And this is really a half cane. It's a weird structure. But on the inside, I was getting evidence of these micro-scale vortices, these mesovortices. It, it got dead calm outside. So I thought, because I'd lost internet at this point, I thought, okay, I'm safely able to go into the eye. And I was in the eye, had the car door open as I was uh, getting camera stuff. And with that, out of nowhere, gusty about 70, 80 miles per hour came in from dead calm. And unfortunately, and, and don't tell her this, unfortunately kind of yanked the car door partially off. I got it, you know, yanked it, bungee corded it back. 
but uh, it was the second car that that suffered a, a hurricane-related casualty. And I think I'm on some sort of rental blacklist, but I understand why. But in, in any case, significant damage. One of the small moments of levity from the storm, as I was in the eye, the sun went down, I was driving back, and I noticed all of a sudden there was something kind of slimy on me. And during the eye wall, apparently a frog must, a tree frog must have blown from a tree onto my shoulder. And, and I somehow, I don't know how long I drove with it for, but there was a frog inside the vehicle. And it was, it was a, a nice touch to the end of the, the day. Driving back to New Orleans was really challenging. It was significant damage all over the place, the power lines. I tried seven different routes to get back. It took me about six hours for what should have been a two and a half hour drive. Again, I couldn't pass here. I didn't want to go swimming. I do not mess with power lines. One thing that absolutely terrifies me when I chase is electricity, whether it be from lightning or power lines. Even railroad crossings were, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if the train was coming, if only half a train was coming. It was, you know, that I did not want to mess with the chandelier of doom, so I chose an alternate route. There were overturned tractor trailers. I made sure to stop, make sure no one was in here. It was uh, searched and clear. From the plus side, when in New Orleans, you have to stop and pick up some Zaps chips, which is what I did. So in total, I think the most memorable chase that season was probably Sally for me, but it, it really allowed us to get information out to people in so many different ways, creatively using nothing but a phone. And I am immensely grateful to uh, my boss, Jason, for, for giving me that chance. He really took a chance. So did his boss, Mike, and letting me go down and show you know, what I could do with the phone. And, and thankfully, it paid off. We did, I want to say, 12 hits during 11 hits, did you know, tons of articles, tons of pieces like that. And I also learned a lot about the microscale wind effects from, from uh, Josh Werman and Karen Kasiba. And I really think that they're, what they came out with is going to really help change how at least I communicate and how many folks communicate the wind effects inside tropical cyclones. And I, I think that's a, a big thing. Tropical cyclones are not buzz saws. And, and I think in the media, especially, we need to be better about communicating sort of how the winds work. I, I think mobile homes too, it, it's amazing what we can do with mobile home, a mobile phone rather technology, which was something that was a big takeaway for me from this hurricane season, something I'll use next season. And lastly, if you rent a room at an inexpensive motel, ensure before your presentation that there are no spiders nearby. Again, thank you so much to, to you folks for, for allowing me to present today and share this. It was an amazing season. My heart goes out to anyone who's impacted, but from a scientific standpoint, great to see the, the strides folks are making in data. The Hurricane Center and the Weather Service, as always, did an amazing job. Those folks are tireless. Uh, Meaty did a great job. And, and I really think this past season was sort of a success story for, for how how smooth the process can go. Thank you, Matthew. Could you unshare your screen, please? Oh, yes. I'm so sorry about that. Terrific presentation. Well done. And especially under the stress of having a giant spider by your side the whole time. So a lot like the year you track the, the animals, the frogs, the spiders. and <laughs> Tornadoes, I will do hurricanes. I will do spiders. I am petrified of. <laughs> Great stuff. If, if you have questions for Matthew, text them to 956 956- 393-9187. We're going to take a break. We come back. We'll ask your questions and ours and hear a lot more from Matthew. So don't go away. We'll be back after the break. Beach lovers know it. Fishermen and water lovers know it. Little kids and big kids know it. Sandcastle builders, free spirits, and adventure seekers know it. Everyone who's ever been here knows it. South Padre Island is so fun, so perfect, and most of all, so Padre. 
Plan your escape at SoPadre.com. Blackmagic Design's ATEM Streaming Bridge is a video converter that lets users receive an H.264 stream from any ATEM Mini Pro or ATEM Mini Extreme switcher and convert it back to SDI and HDMI video. This means users can send video to remote locations around their local Ethernet network or via the Internet globally. ATEM Streaming Bridge is the perfect way to use ATEM Mini Pro or ATEM Mini Extreme as a remote broadcast studio. ATEM Streaming Bridge is available for $245 from Blackmagic Design resellers worldwide. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. And welcome back to NTWC Live. Fascinating presentation today from Matthew Capucci talking about uh, chasing some hurricanes and the Doppler on wheels. Um, terrific stuff and fascinating information. I'll, I'll start with a question, then we'll send it over to Bill. And reminder, if you've got questions, 956-393-9187. You can text your questions to that number if you're watching us live today. Of course, if you're watching the recorded, that may not work so well for you. Uh, I've got a question about the, the tornado scale vortices. Um, you know, seeing a lot of those in there. Of course, that's what's so difficult to warn on within it within a system. How long do those last typically and how fast are they moving? Yeah, so there are tornado scale vortices and there are actually mini swirls too, which is something that I think uh, we, we understand even, even less about, which is one of the challenges. For tornado scale vortices, they might be a couple hundred feet wide and they'll usually last, from what I understand, about 10, maybe 15 minutes, sometimes even more. They can be a transit as a sort of orbit around the eye, they are enhanced by mesovortices too. So it's like we get from larger vortices to smaller scale vortices. And, and those tornado scale vortices are almost like a, a miniature mesocyclone or like a mesocyclone on the ground. So it's not one real tight funnel. It's more sort of a, a broad area of, of wind that uh, might be, like I said, a couple hundred feet wide, but can really on the right side, on the cyclonic side, enhance those winds even more at the surface just because it's adding to the background wind. So they usually last, you know, 10, 15 minutes, maybe more. But I think one of the distinctions is that within that, you also can have actual tornadoes, usually within the outer rain bands, but they've been documented within the eye wall as well. And then you can have something that, that sort of strays the boundary, and, and those are called mini swirls, something Fujita, the, the term coined by Fujita. And those might only be 10 feet wide, if that. And from what I understand, they're only about maybe one or two uh, actual video videos of them that, that exist to really document them. But they're even smaller than tornado scale vortices or the tornadoes themselves. And those, I would argue, are, are impossible to detect via radar unless you're right next to them, e even super high resolution ones, because you know, they, they might form from, even from wind effects in buildings. They might only last 10, 20, 30 seconds. But when you have that much of a, a speed shear with height, any small eddy near the surface can be vertically stretched quickly, form a quick hitting little, uh, I think of those, uh, the, the finger traps, you know, the ones where if you stretch, it gets tighter and, and all of a sudden, you know, your fingers get stuck, but it gets stretched very quickly. And that might only last 15, 20, 30 seconds at best. And so there's no real way to detect those. And those usually only form in the strongest storms, but uh, are a very significant staple of wind damage. We have some good questions coming in via text. Let me go to Bill for a little bit, then we'll come back and do some of these questions that are coming in from the viewers today. Bill, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I've heard over time this, this idea of a, a post-storm uh, 
wind damage scale for hurricanes being different than the Fujita uh, scale that we use for tornadoes, and you, you described pretty accurately what the the challenge was on the on the meteorology side. There's uh, have you have you talked to uh, your 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 comrade at the at the post, uh, Brian McCulby, about any of these uh, any of this, and what did he have to say? Uh, I haven't yet. We, we did a lot of coordinating last hurricane season, but unfortunately we haven't had a chance to kind of do a debrief just given how busy last year was going right from hurricane season into a uh, winter time. But uh, I think it's something worth talking about, uh, especially with, with him and a lot of other folks. I know that they're working on it. I've heard a, a few folks looking into too, you know, trying to add rainfall criteria to the, the Saffir Simpson scale, because uh, as I'm sure everyone here has grappled with, how do we communicate that a storm that might not even be a hurricane can have a worse death toll than a hurricane, given that most, that most deaths occur from flooding? That's a, a big challenge that we face in the communication side of things. And uh, I think between that and uh, the challenges of wind damage, not being able to be rated by a Fujita scale given duration, it j just makes it so much more challenging than, than boiling down a hurricane to sort of the the, uh, the the number that corresponds only to wind speed and, and the wind speed itself something sampled high in the atmosphere in, in a way that most people won't experience on land just just so many challenges with that and I think it's a great point you make yeah scales yeah, right now I'm not a big fan of scales anyway other than the post storm because it's you have the time and effort to detail the work and there a big problem with the the, the tropical events is how widespread the the event is. You think about how long it takes to properly survey the damage from a, a long track wide tornado. Uh, that, that's only a small percentage of the area covered that you would have with the hurricane. Uh, uh, that, uh, I was also struck by that. There's not too many storms where I've seen uh, uh, temperature around 23C at 700 millibars in, in Laura. Yeah, several people I talked to about that thought that uh, uh, it gave credence to the idea that if we had 12 more hours over water, we'd, we'd jack the storm up to maybe even a Category 5. Wow. And, uh, uh, and uh, one of the things you need to get on once we get past the COVID issues is uh, I think you would really uh, uh, enjoy and learn a lot if you got on a flight with the hurricane hunters. I would love that. Um, I'm such a, a big fan of the Hurricane Center and, and the, the work of the hurricane hunters too. And, and I'd, I'd love to hop a flight, of course, post COVID, but uh, one of these days. Yeah, they're they're very open to it. You seem to be able to travel quickly at a moment's notice, which tends to uh, really cull down the number of people that would like to go but can't because of other commitments. So, Tim, what do we got for questions coming in? Had a couple of good ones, and kind of following up on the earlier question about uh, about the meso vortices and the tornado scale vortices. Um, what are your thoughts? And this is from Barry. What are your thoughts about communicating the wind risk for public versus gusts? And of course, duration is also important with wind during a storm. But but communicating that risk, I think, is the issue a lot of times. So that's one thing I've tried to to grapple with myself is sort of the the best way to communicate these things. I sometimes for social media, and we've done this in a couple of Washington Post articles too, is, and I know this is different for TV, given that, you know, I'm not routinely on TV, but I've tried just drawing sort of lines or almost zones in a storm. I'll take the eye wall, draw a ring around the eye wall, draw the path the eye wall is going and say within here, you know, 
winds, erratic wind shifts, uh, quick change in the gusts, and of course the gusts are what do the damage. It, it's you know if you have pressure constant, that's a I'll draw you know a, a sort of a ring and just say within this area, this is where the winds will be really significant. And frankly, outside the eyewall, in most places, the wind damage isn't that bad. And so I'll just try to identify what the worst threat in a given location is. So whether it be near the coast, I'll say, you know, here's where the surge will be your worst threat. Here's where the wind will be your worst threat. Here's where inland freshwater flooding will be your worst threat. Just so folks know kind of what they need to prioritize. Uh, I think that way too, we, we sort of escape the issue of, hey, the last storm wasn't that bad. Because when you show, when we show, for example, on satellite, th this massive storm, people can't really see the, the dynamics of here's the eye wall, here's you know the area around the eye wall, here's the central, you know, here, here are the, the bands in between squalls. They just see eye, central dense overcast. And so the way they interpret it and the way they interpret it too is shading, especially when we show infrared satellite imagery to the public is, hey, if you're underneath the purple, you're going to get the worst fit. If you're under whatever, and that area occupies a much broader area than where the eye wall is itself. And, and as a result, I think if people ride through a storm, they might be, say, 15 miles from the eye wall and get comparatively little wind, they might think, oh, it wasn't that bad. It was a Category 4. We only got winds of, let's say, 60, 70 at my house. I'll stay for the next one, whereas in the next one, the eye wall might move closer. So I'm, I'm trying, at least when I communicate, to show hey, you know, let, let's treat this like a thunderstorm. Let's put the track on it. Let's show here's your area of damaging winds. And I think that's something the Weather Service has been doing a great job in communicating through with the extreme wind warning. But I think we need more of that from the media side, showing that, hey, you know, these winds are occupying a very narrow swath in comparison to the flooding, in comparison to the surge. I, I think, folks, if we do that, people will sort of better understand that it's not just raw radial info. Terrific, terrific. That's really good because that's always an issue uh, on on the television side. Certainly, is is you've got a broad scale, and and how do you tell people? You know, you just went through the edge of this thing. You know, it could have been a whole lot worse. Um, got another good question, and we know we always have some young aspiring meteorologists watching. And I know we do today. Um, what kind of advice do you have for those aspiring meteorologists? That your youthfulness and level of knowledge is what they're striving for. Well, my goodness, my level of knowledge is nowhere near what I would like it to be. And I'm not yet career-wise where I'd like to be yet either. But uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, very, very fortunate that so many nice people, I, I can't, I, I, it would take me hours to name all the just incredibly nice people who have given me chance after chance to try something new, do something new, learn something new. Even the AMS who, who you know, the broadcast conference, they let me present when I was 14, 15 years old. The fact that people gave me time to talk, but not only that, they, they asked great questions and they answered my questions. It was like having a, an entire room filled with 150 mentors, 150 teachers, and every person you meet can be a phenomenal teacher. And I've just been so privileged to, to, to make uh, you know, amazing friends, amazing mentors in the industry. And it's amazing to think that, you know, even, for example, being on this call right now with, with you three, you know, I'm a big fan of all you guys, a big fan of your work, and, and I've learned from each of the things that you've tweeted or, or written, and, and that's made a huge difference, too. So just being able to ask as many questions and sort of tirelessly search for the answer. I'm, I'm very much type A. I'm sure that comes across in the presentation. I will not rest until I find the answer to something, and if I don't have the answer, I'll do anything I can to go and search for it or to, you know, start investigating it myself, that's been a, a great thing that I love. So 
was just uh, obsessed by that natural curiosity and not being afraid to uh, reach out to folks. One of the things that I was really, you know, really helped with me, I, and I probably shouldn't be sharing this story, but back in high school, I wanted to write for newspapers. And I knew I was a decent writer and I just wanted to do as a, you know, a side hobby, maybe make a little extra money. But I was 14, 15 at the time and, and no one would review my, my samples. Everyone said I was too young to write. And so I wound up falsifying my age on my resume, sending off a couple of writing samples and getting a job that they hadn't met me for. And then only after a year telling them, Hey, I'm, I'm younger than, you know, you thought I was, but now I'm 16 and, and you legally can employ and, and pay me. But uh, that worked great because that expanded to a couple other papers. And one day I got a note from, I think I was 18 or 19. I get a note from Jason at the post who I had never interacted with before. And he asked, Hey, would you like to, you know, would you like to write a piece? I said, Oh, sure. So I did that. And then that was the year that we got Harvey, Irma, Maria, all the crazy storms. And so after that, I just started writing pieces every single day. We had the eclipse that year, and it really just grew from there. So I think just getting to interact with as many folks as possible, and you, you never know whose path you're going to cross with, or who, who you're going to cross paths with down the road, too. So trying to be nice to people. I'd like to think I'm nice. <laughs> Good advice. Look at that spider. <laughs> I stopped on it a minute ago. <laughs> Y'all didn't see. We didn't hear that. Yeah, we didn't hear that at all. Great yeah, advice. <laughs> and, and I hope the young viewers appreciate that. Bill, do you have any more questions on that end? Uh, uh, not really. It's another sort of a comment that you, you alluded to the fact that the evacuations were almost total. They were in southwest Louisiana and the far southeast Texas. And, and you know, One of the things I learned at the Hurricane Center is how amazingly different response is as you go from one area of the coast, say New England, then the Mid-Atlantic, then Florida, then areas along the Gulf Coast, and I think the best, the highest compliance I've seen for evacuation orders has generally been in the area impacted by both Laura and Delta, and it goes to their history. They've got uh, Audrey, which killed a lot of people and had a tremendous surge, followed by uh, Rita, which was a high surge event, and then Ike, which provided a surge even though the center was a long, long way away, so that when these came along, uh, these people are educated by Mother Nature. They know what's coming at them, and when the officials say go, there's not a question in their mind they have to go. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, Jason, great job today. Uh, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, I'm looking at it next week. Matthew, great job today. We appreciate it. Uh, great presentation, and I think uh, uh, all the viewers and listeners got some great information out of that. And we look forward to having you back sometime uh, in the future because I, I I think you're obviously on a chase now. We'd like to hear more about some of these uh, severe weather chases you're doing in the deep south as well. And well, thank you again so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to be here and, and big fan of, of you guys, you know, organizing these conferences and getting this information out to so many people. It's, it's, it's critical, it's vital, and you guys do a great job doing it. All right, let's take one more break. We'll be back and wrap up the show and talk about it next week. Don't go away. We make USAA insurance for renters who make the most of their space and money. That's why we make it easy to cover the stuff you love for as little as 33 cents a day. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Blackmagic Design's ATEM Mini line of live production switchers makes it easy to create professional broadcast quality programs and multi-camera productions and stream them live to YouTube, Facebook, and more, or present live via Zoom and Skype. 
Simply connect the ATEM Mini and switch live up to eight high-quality video camera inputs for dramatically better quality images. All ATEM Mini models have USB that works like a webcam for use with any streaming software, while the ATEM Mini Pro and the ATEM Mini Extreme models add direct live streaming and recording to USB disks. ATEM Mini models start at $295. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. We are back at NTWC Live. Our guest today, of course, has been Matthew Capucci. Matthew, again, terrific job today. Do you have any final thoughts, anything you want to leave us with after you know, everything that you've uh, been through in the last year, couple of years? I think one of my biggest takeaways is just how amazing of a job that the hurricane industry does nowadays. Uh, they, they've always been great, but just it's amazing to think that we can have people evacuate, you know, a, a day before, two days before, with confidence down to 50, 60 miles as to where a storm is going. I, I think the fact that we had 30 storms last year, and, and yet every single one of them was approached as meticulously as the first one, really speaks volume to the dedication of folks at the Hurricane Center. Bill, I know you did an amazing job leaving the Hurricane Center when you were there, and it's it's so nice to see that uh, subsequent uh, leaders have have sort of followed in your footsteps. And really, it's just very nice to see that uh, last year, I felt like we really, aside from Laura and Delta and the Lake Charles area, in the U.S. anyway, we really dodged all folks a false sense of complacency, given what we've seen in recent years. Terrific. Bill, final thoughts from you? Yep. Uh, not, to, not to dampen your enthusiasm, but we have uh, and speaking for a lot of the residents on the Gulf Coast, we hope we don't see you reporting on any storms in the Gulf this year. <laughs> when I show up, it's never a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you and Cantori on that shuttle together really worries people, you know. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate it. As always, I want to thank our sponsors, of course, who are with us uh, day in and day out. Plylocks, USAA, and the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Don't forget to go to maglite.com. You get a 25% discount on your purchases using the code NTWC25. Next week, Dr. Jason Sippel will be with us. I think yet another terrific presentation next week. I think that's going to be awesome as well. That'll be next week at 10 a.m. right here on hurricanecenterlive.com. And we'll do a preview for you on Facebook just to remind you where you can find us in case you forget. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Alex, well done in San Antonio. Always keeping the show flowing smoothly. We appreciate that. We'll see you next week.